Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Disrupted Workforce Podcast, a show focused on how disruptions such as coronavirus, the 2021 recession, AI, and emerging technologies are reshaping and reimagining work, skills, and purpose in 2021 and beyond. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Our mission is to help you navigate these challenging and dynamic times with humanity, actionable insights, and honest conversations with experts in their field. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to rate and review the podcast if you find the content resonates with you. We are grateful for your time, attention, and hope you'll share these important conversations with the people in your life. We're here to help, and we want to make a difference. Nate and I have seen firsthand the undeniable power of upgraded communication skills through men's work, coaching, corporate workshops, and most certainly in our personal lives with our partners, parents, friends, and children. In 2020, a year when the whole world has suffered huge spikes in anxiety, stress, loneliness, and depression, the ability to better manage our communication when we feel any number of powerful emotions, sometimes many at once, becomes more valuable than ever. A Harvard study of adult development conducted by Dr. Robert Waldinger, one of the world's longest studies of adult life taking nearly 80 years of adult observation, showed that strong social ties and healthy relationships are the number one predictor of good physical, emotional, and mental health, and ultimately longevity. The study also showed that people living in conflict was bad for your health, that good relationships protect our brains and keep people's memories sharper, longer. It's the quality of your relationships, not the quantity. A definition used by our guest today, Jason Diggs, and his co-founder, Ryle Castano, is, quote, authentic relating is a set of principles and practices designed to cultivate trustable, empowering, and nourishing connections and relationships with everyone in your life. At its core, authentic relating is making the implicit explicit, the hidden revealed, and the unconscious conscious. Practitioner Michael Porcelli calls it, quote, an approach to cultivating more genuine, fulfilling, and mutually rewarding relationships in any context. It is part a social technology and art form and a way of being with others. More than information, it's practical know-how. In a 2017 article in The Atlantic, an author delving deep into his own experience of wading into authentic relating waters writes, quote, in the plainest human language with which I can explain it, authentic relating uses exercise or games to teach and facilitate the skills like curiosity and empathy necessary to quickly create deep, meaningful human connection. In a period when loneliness is increasing as our avenues for connecting expand, practitioners tell me they are drawn to a community that makes conversing and relating with one another an intentional activity, one with guidelines and structure designed to elicit intimacy, end quote. So with all that said, we are super excited to introduce today's guest, Jason Diggs. Jason is obsessed with how humans can live and relate optimally and is well-versed in topics such as transpersonal psychology, spirituality, productivity, and personal growth. Since 2012, Jason has facilitated groups and taught authentic relating and circling. In 2017, Jason co-founded Authentic Relating Training International and has led courses in 20 cities around the world and in 2020 finished 
and released the book, Conflict Equals Energy, the transformative practice of authentic relating, which I've read and highly recommend because it brings the practice of authentic relating to life in a powerful way. Check it out. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. And it is excellent. And it is the perfect gift to begin this practice in 2021. So, Jason, thank you again so much for joining us. It is an honor and a pleasure to see you again and to have you on the show. And um, we'd love to just dive right in. So to open things up, we've defined a little bit. Uh, we, we've shared your definition and some other definitions of, of authentic relating at the outset. How would you describe or define authentic relating as a practice? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's good to talk about authentic relating as a movement and a practice both because, you know, we have all of these streams of wisdom that have come from the personal growth world, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, people in Esalen, like making all these experiments with personal growth and, and how we um, transform as humans and, you know, the, the psyche, our, our shadow and like all of this stuff. Right. And so here we are in 2020. And all of us have been more and more glued to cell phones over the last 14 years. Like we're in the, we're in the very beginning of a huge worldwide experiment of like what these things do to our brains, right? Mm -hmm. What they do to our nervous systems. And uh, so authentic relating is really a movement. Um, it's a decentralized movement being taught by you know, 10 or a hundred people, depending on how you count it, um, all these communities all over the world, because I think people are really longing for, to connect, longing for who's my tribe. Um, you know, our, our belonging needs are like, like, who am I in relation to my peers? It's not immediately at, obvious after high school and college. In the beginning of our lives, it's like, um, we're doing this social development thing. We're figuring out who we are, right? And here we are at the end of 2020, and we've been more isolated than ever. And who we are, defining that is like job number one for a human being. Right. And the way we define who we are is actually by our five closest people and our 25 closest people that are our tribe. And so authentic relating really developed as a way for people to create rich and meaningful relationships. You know, you referenced this Harvard study, um, which after 80 years, they found something that was like kind of quite simple, which is <laughs> the quality of our relationship at the end of our life determine whether or not we have regret yes. or, or fulfillment. Um, and it's very little else. And so how do we maintain um, deep, and rich relationships over the course of um, five, 10, 20 years. Uh, those are really important skills to have. And as human beings, we literally need to train them. They're not automatic. They atrophy if we don't use them. So almost four years ago, me and my co-founder looked at this and like, how do we make this practice accessible to everyone? Not just people who have done a lot of meditation or yoga or are in the know or have all the jargon. How do we make it? Um, really have an impact on our society as a whole. And that's why we, um, I've formulated the, all of the curriculum into a very bite-sized pieces in this book. 
so it's a set of practices and tools to grow our emotional intelligence directly. Um, and, and, you know, I've had 15 and 16 year old um, young adults in my classes, in my course with their parents, and they're learning these skills together. And it's so accessible. That's wonderful. So what our audience doesn't know is that over the summer, in spite of the pandemic, I jumped on a flight from Miami to LA purposefully to seek out an in-person AR level one weekend intensive uh, with Jason. And, you know, I knew you guys had the online thing going and I know you guys are doing a fantastic job online. My, my fiance just took your online level one and loved it, cool. but I really wanted to learn from you and spend some time with people doing this because I, I sense that that tactile experience would be really, really valuable. And what was amazing was the, the age range and diversity just in that small group, right? We were, we were in LA and a, and a, and a lovely home generously donated for the weekend by uh, one of the attendees. And I would say the age range was from 20 to late sixties, men, women, coupled, single, all of the above and the value um, that we all experience collectively and the way that everybody very quickly dropped in and mm -hmm. saw how transformative this was. And for me personally, coming out of that, I almost immediately experienced a lift in my relationship. So whether it was my ability to hold space a little bit better in my men's group and be a little bit more thoughtful and how I uh, facilitated in that work or you know, with my uh, then girlfriend, now fiance, just when conflicts would come up and just the notion that, that conflict is an opportunity for positive growth and change. Like that in of itself was a mind blowing idea. I've seen improvement in my parenting and my relationship with my mom. It's, uh, it is very powerful stuff. So I just want to share that with everybody listening today that, that I've, that I've tried the pudding and it tastes good. And uh, this is a, a, a really <laughs> fantastic treat to have, to have Jason and his, his wisdom and expertise to mm -hmm. kind of guide us through um, how this can manifest in your life. Mm -hmm. It would be awesome to dive in a little bit more into, into the framework, right? I learned that there are, and this is laid out in detail in your book and in the course, but there are five core practices that we need to embrace at varying levels. And, you know, this is sort of a toe in the water for our audience, but the five core practices to be effective at authentic relating are welcome everything, assume nothing, reveal your experience, own your experience, honor self and other. Mm -hmm. And Jason, I'd love if you could give a little bit of context around these and also share why assume nothing is your personal favorite. Mm -hmm. So we created these five practices and uh, they just kind of emerged out of the first uh, six or eight months of teaching together and welcome everything. It's just like a starting point. You cannot effectively address a situation in your life or address a feeling inside of you unless you turn towards it. That's my synonym for welcome everything and turning towards it. It's not necessarily accepting or tolerating everything it's it's we simply bring friendliness and welcoming and turning towards um 
room, uh, uh, Hafez has this amazing uh, poem about the guest house, of welcoming each part of you, whether that's a part that's happy or or distraught or upset or um, joyful, welcoming each of them as a guest, right? So that's that's where welcome everything comes from. Assume nothing. The reason it's my personal favorite is because it's impossible. <laughs> it's almost like the, um, a really fun game because our brains are designed to make assumptions. Our brains are these supercomputers that are trying yeah. to anticipate what's going to help us and what, what's going to hinder us constantly and, and rapidly pattern matching what's happening in the present to everything we've experienced previously in life. And, um, but if we do ex- succeed in coming close to assume nothing, it produces this state experience of pure possibility and pure creativity. And we can do something that is an advanced pra- practice in authentic relating, which is undamming. If we, if we have put someone into a box and we've told ourselves a story of how they, how they be and what their motivations are and why they're wrong, but then we catch ourselves doing that, assume nothing is the practice that actually allows us to come back into relationship with them for who they actually are. And um, assume nothing is the birthplace of curiosity. And so, so that undamming practice is effectively just ripping those labels that we throw so serendipitously out into the world, onto people and situations and things, and just pulling it back and, and, and recognizing in ourselves, wait a second, this is unsubstantiated. This is based on my own patterning, my own way of being. This is not reality. This is a construct of my mind that has created and put this label on this person, experience, or thing. And I, I need to recognize that I've just done that, right? Exactly. Yeah, bringing curiosity to someone that we've previously, um, you know, put into a box or labeled them as something um, is healing for both parties. Yeah, yeah. We need a lot more of that in the world today. There's um, a guy by the name of... Uh, I want to say it's uh, Simon Greer, and he's a political activist, and one of the, th- the ideas that he's put forth into the world is find that person that has the view that makes you cringe, that makes your skin crawl, and go and ask them to tea or ask them to coffee or ask them to lunch and have a conversation. And when they get to that thing that you just can't stand, lean in and say, tell me more. Wow. Yeah. And what a kindness. So like a very unusual, unique kind of kindness or, or generosity to someone to listen to them when you disagree with them or have them damned in your head. It's, you know, in a way it's um, synonymous with opening our hearts. And it's a kindness to yourself because you're allowing yourself to grow and see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A practical example of that that I think about a lot is um, asking the question to myself and others over the years as I do my work is, um, have you ever met someone that you did not like in the beginning and you 
really made up a story about how you didn't like them. And you maybe even told people how you didn't like them. And then, and of course, everybody raised their hands. Yeah, yeah. And then I say, and have you ever at any point in your life found out that you really actually did like that person, had a lot in common with them, appreciated them on a completely different level, and had to roll back this whole story and construct that you made up in your head? And, mm. and it's a universal experience. Everybody raises their hand and goes, yeah, I've, I've absolutely changed my mind about a person before. And the things that I made up aren't true. Mm. I think that's kind of ground zero for, you know, that idea of we make a bunch of stuff up. Mm -hmm. Jason, I know we want to get to some other topics, but I, I would love it if you could just spend another minute or two just at a high level talking about or contextualizing own your experience, uh, reveal your experience, and honor self and other. Could you say a little bit about those just briefly uh, before we move forward? Yeah. Yeah, revealing ourselves to ourselves as if we were a mystery that we are exploring is um, it's the doorway to, to learning and growth and continuous human development you know when we're 80 and 90 years old we can still be developing mm. and so revealing is the, the key to um, number one being surprised by ourselves and uncovering new uh, parts of our own self but then also the key the cure to loneliness actually because so often if we feel disconnected with people in our lives, especially the people closest to us, like if we feel disconnection from our roommates or our spouse or our um, colleagues or friends, the solution 95% of the time is, or the reason we feel disconnected is because we're hiding something. We're having a series of thoughts or judgments or fears that we haven't actually said out loud. And we're kind of stewing in our own stuff. Yeah. And so, so learning, <laughs> so for people to just learn to set the context of like, you don't even need to do anything with this. And this may even, and I even know that this is a little bit crazy, but I'm afraid X of X, Y, and Z, yeah. you know, I'm afraid that you think I'm ABC. And when we reveal that, the emotional energy starts to move and digest and metabolize. And so that's why reveal your experience is, you know, one of our five core practices. Um, Let, let's, let's double click on that for one second to use a consulting industry buzzword that I used to use in my work. Um, <laughs> as someone who has studied loneliness and isolation and has been paying very close attention to the debate about how technology is and, and how living in this more connected world than ever is actually making us feel more isolated than ever. Yeah. What you said is quite profound. It's that when you feel lonely, my understanding, and I want to repeat it back in the right way, is that effectively you are, you are creating that sense of isolation by not revealing enough of yourself to the people that you care about and the relationships that matter. You're effectively self-isolating and creating your own loneliness by not being open, by putting your defenses up and not saying the thing that needs to be said. Is that right? Exactly. We're hiding in some way. Yeah, hiding. Mm -hmm. 
So for anyone that's feeling lonely, consider sharing something and being vulnerable <laughs> with someone that you care about. <laughs> yeah. Lean in, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, now, at the beginning of your book, Conflict Equals Energy, on page 11, you write so well, I might add, quote unquote, authentic communication is the opposite of strategic. It does not guarantee you to make more money, have more power, to quickly get more love and approval, or to have more sex. Authentic communication is always a risk. You can be easily rejected if you are honest. You uh -huh. can be laughed at if you do not support someone else's narrative and agenda. You also risk not getting what you want and sacrificing your own agenda at the altar of innocence. So I felt this in a really profound way. I think for some, risking the upside of strategic communication for the vulnerability of authentic communication might seem like a really bad trade, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I would love for you to say more on why you feel this trade is so incredibly worthwhile because the, the stakes are high here, right? The stakes are high. Yep. Well, first I need to come clean and say that I didn't write that. Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that's from the forward by Arjuna Ardog. And um, Arjuna is an author um, and I've met him a few times over the years. I just want to note how well that Jason is practicing owning his own experience, <laughs> revealing his experience and being vulnerable. Here, <laughs> um, yeah, I've met, I've met him a couple times over the years in passing and I reached out to him and I was like, hey, will you write an endorsement for my book? And he came back and he's like, Jason, like, here's, you know, here's three sentences to endorse your book and it's so good. Do you have someone to write the forward yet? And I was so blown away and honored um that he literally offered i didn't even ask him to do it and and then i had to like cut what he wrote in half because the <laughs> the the book is really designed to be like punchy and fat and like um concise and and so i had to like negotiate with like someone who i really respected and a mentor of mine to like cut and slash his writing it was it was a really interesting journey uh to do that but I like how he, he basically reframed authentic relating as um, strategic communication versus innocence, right? Mm. In, in you know, just a couple pages. And, mm. and in authentic relating, we, the words we would use is authentic or inauthentic. Mm -hmm. um, but authenticity doesn't necessarily mean that we need to share everything as well. It's, it's really often about sharing that very next layer of what's underneath the surface. In um, the book, you, you talk about that, the, the risk of, hey, guys, this is not free license to run around dropping truth bombs on everybody <laughs> you know and are close to. You know, this is not designed to blow up your relationships. This is designed to create more intimacy and closeness. But there's... So there's, there's, I mean, again, this is an art form. How to do this well is an art form. Yep. That's my uh, funny phrase to summarize authentic relating is we teach you how to tell the truth without blowing up your relationships Yeah. and how to be authentic. But what I, I think you're pointing to something really interesting, which is 
if you choose the path of authenticity, nothing is guaranteed. You're not necessarily going to have a better life. But what you get is to actually be yourself. And it turns out like that's actually more satisfying. Yeah, I think that um, my personal experience is even when it doesn't go well, it's better. I feel more whole and integrated and connected and more me. Um, and the times that I am inauthentic, it just eats at me and chews at me. And then I've got to go clean it up, right? Because it's nagging at me and I can just feel this thing. So I, I guess I'm saying, yes, you made the statement. It may not get better, may not be better, but I would offer that I've experienced it is better, even when it doesn't go well. Yeah. And I think we have to um, learn how to tell the truth uh, in increments. I don't recommend that people just start blasting everyone of the truth in their lives after they do a course or read this book. Um, we have to test the waters because we, we have to create safety. Like The more safety, psychological safety we have in our relationship or on a team in business, the more we can tell the truth. Right? And it's this really interesting, uh, mysterious thing that authenticity is not up to one person. It's, it's actually something that lives between the people. And the more um, healthy a relationship is, the more truth it can hold. Okay. Yeah. The safety is actually created by modeling the authenticity. Um, mm -hmm. Even if it's not exactly quite right, if someone you can tell someone is putting themselves out there, and it maybe feels a little bit off, but it's just, it creates safety, right? If you'll go, I'll go, right? Let's, let's both try to wade into these waters. It feels weird. <laughs> this is awkward. And yet it feels um, compelling. I was talking to a lot of my students and I'm like, what is really actually so valuable about this? And they said, you guys teach people how to handle conflict and tension in your, their relationships. Hmm. And I realized that this was the universal thing. This hmm. was the thing that everybody needs training in because conflict is an inevitable part of life. And if we can change our orientation towards, you know, con it's a fundamental shift from like, this shouldn't be happening, which is, yep. you know, when we get into conflict with people we love, or when we get into conflict, when, you know, our, um, our position at work or our social status is on the line for one reason or another, our brain screams emotion, like emotional pain signals at us. <laughs> like there's actually studies coming out that these emotional pain signals are just as real as like, if you chopped off the tip of your finger when you were um, cutting vegetables in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's real, the pain that we feel when we're in conflict. And so. It, it can be horrible. I mean, it can be absolutely horrible. I have a, a rich emotional life. I've always been pretty sensitive. And when I have real conflict with someone that I really care about, I have found it so, so incredibly triggering. And the reframe on that, just from your course, that, hey, this is coming up, and this is an opportunity to improve this relationship. Yeah. That totally changed the story in my head. I mean, that was an unbelievable shift. Mm -hmm. And so even if the feelings are uncomfortable, just the notion that, hey, this is, 
this something good is going to come out of this. The moment it happens, the moment it's happening, I'm going to get through this and find something good. And I have all these new tools of how to handle it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. If we, if we can learn that shift from this shouldn't be happening, which is the pain signal screaming at at us, like this should not be happening. Ah, how do I get out of this? How do I appease this person? How do I defend myself um, to an orientation of, oh, this should be happening because it is. That's the way the universe works is, is sending me this very dense packet of information that I have to decode. Um, yeah, and why would we do that? Well, that goes into the benefits. The, begin- the benefits of learning to actually transform conflict um, in our relationships are just huge. People experience us as masterful communicators when we're able to do that. You know, how many, uh, like if you think about with your significant other, like after you're able to get to the truth and get back to the connection, what happens? Passion, love, open heartedness. <laughs> you know. And and I think the what I would share with you and with the audience is I think that these tools enable you to get through conflict more quickly. I think the the intensity of the uncomfortable emotions and my recent experience and my nascent experience with this practice is that they dissipate more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So then would you also say that the because you changed the title and realize the feedback you're getting is this is the the magic is in navigating the conflict and feeling power where there was once um, you know, whatever a host of negative emotions is that also the biggest win? As people go through the work, they feel like, "Hey, I'm finally getting wins now with conflict." Is that where people are the most excited? Yeah, I think so. People are, you know, some people will tell these stories of like, "I haven't really felt close to my brother in five years because there was there was this thing that happened," and. I repaired the relationship and now I feel connected to my fam- to my brother again. Um, or they'll, you know, be able to, and I, I think I'm using the word conflict in a general way as well. That's why I use the phrase conflict intention because there might be just this little thing like, oh, someone did something that rubbed me the wrong way, but it's not the first time. It's actually the third time this something like this has happened. And do I sweep it underneath the rug or do I actually get into relationship with this, with my own frustration and this person? Um, And that tends to be uh, when we can name those small things and learn to create more teamwork as a result. um, That's, that's where real synergy comes into relationship. Thank you. I should add that I just spent the weekend with my mom and she brought up a petty grievance from 1996. No way. And I said, mom, I said, 2000 or later. I said, anything pre 2000, it's got to go. <laughs> Let that shit go, mom. <laughs> wow. Was the grievance with you? Yes, it was very small. And I said, I sort of looked at her. I said, don't you have anything from like the last six months that I've done that has annoyed you? Like, <laughs> we just. Can we speed it up a little bit? Come on, mom. <laughs> in the in the topic of mothers, so last night I was having a conversation with my mom, and I hadn't given her a really 
good, meaty, 45-minute long update about my life in a while. And we didn't get to see each other because of COVID and the holiday. We were doing Zoom calls. Everybody else is on the Zoom call. So the, you know, we just hadn't had a good update. And last night we were talking and I just decided, she goes, well, I'll let you go, you know, and I just decided I'm going to lean in and give her a really meaty update on my life. And while neither of us, I don't think would have called it conflict, um, like you said, it being minor, uh, it meant a lot to her to get that update. And it felt really good for me to share that update. And um, I think there was a, a level of heaviness that was lifted just because I took an extra minute to share and be present and enjoy each other's company. So I, I, in an interesting way, I'm relating that to your comments about even when it's not egregious conflict, you know, where we're like this big thing that I've got five years of pent up emotion wrapped around this thing. Sometimes it's just a small thing I need to do better and it, and it matters. Mm -hmm. I would love to pivot a little bit to technology. So mm -hmm. 2020 has been the year of the zoom call mm -hmm. and I would love to get your thoughts on what are some of the authentic relating do's and don'ts for Zoom, FaceTime, and the video call environment that we are all in. Mm. And I know Nate's going to have a follow-up about so corporate, corporate, <laughs> corporate programs versus personal programs and other things related to the business world. Yeah, I, I kind of want to ask Nate this question after I answer it. Um, I don't like making up do's and don'ts for people. Like my own personal philosophy in life is that I don't make rules for other people. I'm a bit of an anarchist. Um, and it, I'm okay with other people are not like me. That's the most important thing for me is like, um, in a community, it's really a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of values that makes a healthy community. And it's kind of like a human nervous system or uh, immune system, right? The more, um, and, and the, the, <laughs> the, the analogy I use is the RPG, the role-playing game, right? You have one warrior, you have one wizard, you have one cleric, you have one, you know, of this character, one of, you know, and they all have different skill sets, all have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think if we can really learn to celebrate each other's gifts and instead of policing each other's weaknesses, um, that this is what really creates healthy community. And I'm responding about uh, this around the Zoom thing is because, yeah, we can't smell each other. We can't, you know, do the same things. Like we can't dance in the same room as each other. Uh, but so much of our communities have gone online and we've all spent way more hours uh, on Zoom. And there's a certain way in which sometimes when I'm on a Zoom call and I am not, haven't taken care of myself well that day or I'm agitated or I'm, you know, um, I've worked too much or I'm cranky or I've looked at the screen too often. Um, my impatience is higher. 
And I think slowing down is the key to relationship. Like one of my teachers says, the pace of relationship is slow. Mm. And the pace of productivity is high. And our culture really values productivity. Yes. The pace of efficiency is high. So how, how do we balance those? Not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you know? And so I think we're going to have to all get really good at listening mm. if we want to even begin to heal the polarization that's in our culture um, politically. Because now we just have more things to be polarized around. I think an understanding that technology is changing our brain and we need to deliberately train in how to be relational with the other, other people and how to give space to other people and how to uh, slow down. I think that's going to be key to um, not getting lost in all of our screens. Do you think this is a war we can win? Ooh. I am not the most optimistic person in the world. <laughs> um, I think the best possible outcome is that we retain our humanity in the face of the rise of technology. Hmm. And our humanity, meaning our connection and love of nature and outside and our willingness to... Um, often put other people before ourselves and to have kindness be a very high value are those the top notes for you when you think about what does it mean to be human mm -hmm. this is something nate and i talk about a lot uh, and we push that question to our, our last guest who is a co-founder for the center of the future of work and had some rich dialogue about it and um it's really why i'm here i mean nothing is more frightening for me, for my son and, and any children I may have in the future than a world in which we have forgotten what it means to be human and have allowed technology to take over so much that we forget ourselves. And he shared that feedback. Um, he said the same thing. He said, I was so excited to get my kids an iPhone. And then in a very short period of time, I think he said months, I can't remember, but he was like, I looked in the mirror and thought that was a mistake. Because like you said, it takes over. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Jason, the interesting thing here is I don't think technology is the bad guy in and of itself. Technology is a tool. It's a very sophisticated and amazing tool. I still think it comes back to how we're using it. And to your point, how we're developing ourselves to use what is a very different version of technology today. So, I mean, I wonder is, and then this could sound totally ridiculous and crazy, but is there a version of AR where you unpack digital in screens through the lens of AR and, mm -hmm. and you show moments of see how this happened in Facebook and what this looked like in Instagram and how this manifests in Snapchat. Here is the AR version of leaning in and owning your truth or whatever, you know, is there, I mean, it, does that sound ridiculous or does it make sense to actually, like you said, take practical bite-sized actionable moments 
that are in this damn screen every day and go, this is sort of where we lose our humanity. And here's how you can get it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the question. Um, I think that's what we're doing. Okay. You know, I, I think that's what we're doing as a movement in the sense that, you know, uh, my company uh, that I co-founded has uh, a course that has a full training. You get the full authentic relating skill set in six weeks. Um, but there's also plenty of people out there who are just making events that create community. Here's, you know, here's an opportunity to make friends. Here's an opportunity um, to slow down and reflect to another person what you're seeing in them. You know, I, I call this noticing the gifts of others. When we notice the gifts of others and we acknowledge it out loud, when we get actually really good at appreciation, appreciation is an entire skill set that invokes our heart, right? It doesn't matter if we're in person or or over the internet, if we're if we really understand how the heart energy of me and you is connected on a bioenergetic level, and when we invoke appreciation together, when I see the uniqueness in you and celebrate your uniqueness in front of everyone else on the Zoom call, it creates community, right? And and it nourishes you, right? So same, I, same tools, just on the technology medium. Yep, exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Related to this, Jason, you know, you you discuss the ideas richly in the book that we are not machines, and that in today's society, there's a lot of striving for perfection and self improvement that doesn't leave much room for self acceptance. And on page seventy of the book, you write. There are many ways we are limited, whether we care to admit it or not. The idea of limits tends to be unpopular in our culture of personal growth, which glorifies achievement, and the idea that we can do anything we put our minds to. In the West, we seem to be in an all-out war against the idea of human limitation. This individualistic culture of success, aided by social media and the selfie, encourages us to put our best selves forward as much as possible. I would love for you to say a little bit more about this and that would be a a rich conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing this up. I think this is one of the more radical ideas in the book um, in the sense that it's not exactly anti-establishment. Like I think anti-establishment ideas are inherently um, unhelpful for uh, the growth of human society. Like we need the establishment to make sure that we have food distribution so that our society doesn't collapse. Like, <laughs> you know, if, if we're talking about revolution, um, let, let that be a revolution of the heart or a revolution of ideas and not um, endanger uh, human life by doing violence or <laughs> um, so the idea that I'm talking about is very radical, but it stops short of an anti-establishment idea. The idea that I'm talking about is, hey, everyone, take a look at the, um, the way that our iPhones are made. Every single 
person who is there as a cog in the machine to put a part into your iPhone. The assembly line and machines and like mass production has affected our consciousness so much mm -hmm. that we, we are comparing ourselves to our cars. You know, when something breaks, you fix it. When something on your car breaks, you take it to the expert and fix it. When people feel hurt or feel, feel emotional pain, they're like, how do I fix this? That is the fabric of our Western culture. And it's inherently unhelpful. Inherently unhelpful because it's not how we actually grow. We don't grow through criticism. We grow through water and sunlight like a plant. So the, so the, and I'm, I'm kind of fleshing out the idea that I, uh, the ideas that are in the book that are kind of before and after the pas passage you just read. We're, we have more in common with our houseplants than we do with ourselves. Mm. And, and I think acceptance is ironically the way that we grow the most. So can I tack on to that? This is a hot conversation that has been sort of blowing up all around my peer group and then through my family. And it's this simple conversation of aging mm -hmm. and, and, I'm going to grossly generalize this, but there are these two camps, right? And there is the camp of you do whatever you got to do to stay young, to look <laughs> young, to feel young, like inject that thing, man, do that surgery, right? Get that pill. <laughs> what is, what's the thing? Give me the thing. And then there's another camp, which is there's something authentic about surrendering to this natural state. And you can't win this war. You can't beat this game. So what would it look like to just embrace getting older? And it's, it's a pretty heated conversation where people say, oh, hell no. Well, this person would never allow that. I can't look at myself in the mirror. My husband, my wife would never be okay with that. So um, in, in the context of authentic relating, how... What is this um, kind of conversation of aging? I want to ask just one spin to you, Nate. Um, do you see a nuance between wanting to stay youthful and have lots of energy and perform versus just doing it because you have a fear of death and you want to live longer? I mean, I think longevity is a part of the conversation. Longevity is definitely a part of a conversation. I um gut reaction here more of the conversation is centered around the selfie generation looking right. good right i don't right. want right. to stop looking good even even if that means not so just good. just don't nate don't stop <laughs> don't looking good bud don't do it don't do it i don't want that for you either buddy <laughs> so All i right. said this to my wife i said to her i go you know Babe, I don't think we need to do anything to manipulate our bodies. Let's just be honest about what we're going through. And I'm going to have crow's feet and I'm going to get salt and pepper. And uh, this crazy hair is going to start coming out. <laughs> like, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to try to, not going to become this nasty beast that you run from in the hallway. But I think there's something kind of special about that. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think you touched on some of the implications. I put this idea out in the book um, because it's near and dear to my heart, but I didn't have time to talk about death and aging yeah. 
but it's an obvious um it obviously points to this question because if we have an all-out war against limitation right like oh i'm limited in my ability to organize and have and to you know um you know sometimes i miss appointments and sometimes i mess up schedules mm. and if i'm trying to hide that from the people i'm working with and you know there's something inauthentic about that hiding rather than saying like hey i have a challenge in this area can you help me like when we when we talk like can you create a, a google calendar event that will really help me because i <laughs> have this limitation um and I, I think we need to mitigate each other's weaknesses if we're going to be an effective team in an effective community. And part of that is, you know what? Older people, their bodies are weaker. They move slower. Do we actually value what they're really good at? Mm. Or does their, you know, um, aging scare us of our own, about our own aging and about our own fear of death to the point where we just avoid old people? You know, I, I think I'm, I'm very firmly in the second camp. Hmm. I, I, I think the quest to try to live forever is, um, is extremely dangerous and, and um, detrimental to humanity. It, to me, the quest, to, and this, this is not a popular idea. You don't have to agree with me. If you have a different idea, that's totally fine with me. But the idea that we're going to you know, reach the singularity and download ourselves into a computer, um, to me, that is as dangerous an idea as we're going to reach the rapture. And you know, one day we're all going to like, uh, go to heaven. Mm. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm first in line for Elon Musk's new chips. I want to get those put <laughs> right in my frontal cortex and just go. <laughs> you and the pigs. No, it, it's it's very interesting to hear you guys talk about this, and it's funny. I, I have a different view, right? I'm I'm in the I'm in the biohacker camp. I'm I'm in the hey, I'm 42 years old, and how do I get? more performance and feel better and get more done, but at the same time still have a balance with play and productivity and not try to, um, you know, manipulate my looks and stuff like that. But the, the more energy, feel good and, and function longer is, is something that I, I feel I've, I've really embraced, but it's, it's tricky. I mean, it, it is such a, it's a very powerful question, Nate. Well, and I think is, there's something different between, uh, the, there's a philosophical piece to it, and then what you're talking about is optimization, which I, I, I aspire to have excellent blood work, and I am trying hard to optimize my blood work so that I don't die unnecessarily early, right? I think that's a different thing than I'm going to start manipulating the fleshy part of me so that I can try to look younger. It's, right, I think it's a right. whole different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it's I. I'd like to stay on this bicycle as long as I can, but yeah. I know the ride's going to end. It's, it's <laughs> going to really end. accept it. Yeah, it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. 
the, and, and just that whole, the conversation, Jason, behind that of this sort of me, selfie, selfish, arrogance, you know, that kind of energy of it's all about me is, you know, just something in and of itself. And we've talked about that. So thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. your perspective. Yeah. So Jason, a little earlier when we were talking about Zoom, you were speaking about your emotional awareness of when you have certain moods coming up and that when you uh, have these things come up, that one of the first things to go for you is patience. You have a, your, your, your reserve of patience is, is diminished a bit. And that's where authentic relating comes into play and this notion of slowing down. And I found this idea of slowing down to be you know, really, really, really powerful. Um, and that so often in charge conversations, we try to move and react quickly in these conversations. And that's where the blowups ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the idea that the way to do this in AR is, is, is to even directly say to somebody, hey, I need to slow down. Can we slow down? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, such a nice nuance as opposed to, hey, Nate, you need to chill out. <laughs> <laughs> you're a problem which, which which does the opposite right when you say that to somebody they are not going to chill out yeah um and so it's sort of the idea of taking ownership for that and kind of being the person to wave the yellow flag and say hey we need to we need to mitigate our speed and allow this um I'd love for you to say a little bit more about the process of slowing down and, and how you use it. And, and then maybe very specifically, how could you use that on a, on a, how might you use that on a zoom call? And again, I, and I'm, I'm mindful of what you said. I don't want to give advice, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what you might do if you needed to slow down. What are some action steps you might take? Mm. I mean, it all depends on the context. You know, if the context was um, a work meeting and there were six people on the call and, you know, we spent seven minutes on an agenda item and then someone was like, cool, let's move on. We have a lot to cover. Um, I I might say, um, I might use a tool that isn't even in the book that we call tagging. So. Oh, before we move on, I just want to um, tag um, with with you, Alex. Um, can we revisit this conversation um, about X, Y, and Z? Because mm. I have more I want to share with you. And then, you know, and so there's a there's an interesting thing of um, we can't all like go super slow and gaze into each other's eyes if we're trying to get shit done. Mm. You know, it's like we we just need the ability to change gears when it's necessary, right? Yeah. And related to that, you know, get shit done mode. Often that's I mean that happens in personal relationships and and, and everywhere, everywhere. But okay. certainly in the workplace, and and we do like to focus on the workplace uh, on on the show a bit. And uh, I would love to hear how do you, you know, you've led corporate workshops, you've dived into this um, from a corporate perspective, from a work perspective, what are some of those nuances? And Nate, you might want to build with some questions around psychological safety. I know you mentioned that to me as well. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think just giving people shared vocabulary around um, and shared tools is because if you're using the tool set from nonviolent communication, 
right? That works if everyone has the terminology and is, you know, it's like giraffe ears. What, what is giraffe ears? You know, it's, it's just means um, listening to the motivations, wants, and needs underneath the content of what someone's saying. So a lot of what I've done in the book is I've given pe- people a ton of tools, like a, a very dense amount of um, options. Um, you know, I think if we go around with a tool belt that has 30 communication tools in it, we're all going to be um, operating at a higher level, right? And so I tried to translate as much of this personal growth work and, you know, this nonviolent communication work and all of these things into plain language yeah. so that we can, because in a community, we just need shared language to be able to, to have the thing like, oh, you know, can we, can we work on our relationship? Can we actually go relational for a moment? And then we can get good back to getting shit done. This right. is this type of conversation. This is this type of conversation. And so um, in corporations, uh, culture changes slowly. Uh, you need shared language and you need buy-in or enrollment from all of the important stakeholders to do anything. Um, and, you know, leadership, authentic relating it's a really interesting animal because we have all these communication tools and then we all have all these tools for conflict and intention. But really what we're also talking about is social and emotional leadership, right? In a, in a corporation, you can have a person who's the leader when it comes to the vision. You know, they're, they might be the CEO, they might be the founder. You can have a person who's the leader when it comes to the strategy. They might be called the chief strategy officer. We need to actually really, really elevate the HR or have it, you know, HR 2.0 is something that people talk about. Who are the emotional and social leaders in the group? Culture leaders. Yeah. Culture leaders. Yeah. 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 You know, corporations are going to have the chief, chief cultural officer more and more, and they already are. But it's interesting because, um, Someone who is just, you know, a frontline worker can have a really, really important emotional piece. Like, oh, by the way, you know, David's mom died last week. You guys probably need to take that into account with what is actually happening right now. Did you know that? Right. And that might be, that might not be the chief cultural officer. It might not be the CEO or the strategist who keeps those things in mind. Yeah. That comes back to that conversation of psychological safety. Like if you, if it's safe to speak up, if it's safe to um, say things that are not um, always common and it's safe to ask for help, is it safe to raise your hand, you know, and, and, you know, the more of that psychological safety that's put into the water, the more likely any culture is to get a more authentic picture of what's going on for people. Hey, uh, my mom's dying of cancer in the basement and I'm trying my best to care for her. And I feel like I don't have one more ounce of energy to give. Like that conversation normally wouldn't enter the room, but when the, the safety is there, um, 
there's space to have the conversation and support one another. So it's a, it's a really interesting interplay, but totally agree with you, Jason, that, um, you know, the first version of HR was purely transactional. It was literally like, is, are people getting paid? Right. And now there's a version of HR that's called strategic HR, but it really is focused on the largely the business. And then the next version of HR, which is probably more like a 3.0, is how do you optimize and and um, foster culture and psychological safety and authentic relating? And how do we sort of get people to have the shared understanding that you're talking about? And to be able to use those shared tools in a way, and this is the mind blower of the whole thing, you right. can have the speed and agility that you want if you'll just spend some time on the people side of things. It will go so much faster. <laughs> and you'll hit those strategic goals and you'll get to that revenue. But if you keep neglecting the human side of this, the humanity of this beautiful thing that is the heart and soul of your organization, it, you'll never get what you're looking for. Mm. So it'll be great to see that continue to emerge. Certainly something that I spent a lot of years uh, aspiring to create. Yeah, let me, let me turn the tables and ask you guys some questions. <laughs> Go for it. Like, what are you seeing? Like, is, there, is this change that you're talking about, Nate? Is it happening? Is there resistance? Is it slowly adopting? I mean... Is it certain industries? Like I've, I've been more working on the core theory and adapting material from the personal growth world and translating it. Like that's just what I've been thinking about for the past um, five years of my life. Um, but I don't necessarily, you know, it's like our company is still pretty small. Um, we're, we're growing, but um, we're, we're definitely not a corporation. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, there's definitely an undercurrent. So there's a, a huge layer of traditionalism mm -hmm. and the huge layer of traditionalism is comfortable and feels safe. And then there is a, a, a groundswell of, we need to do better. There has to be a better way to achieve our potential, live our best lives while moving our organizations forward and take care of this greater world. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so I think that there, it's, it's early, um, but it's a very good early in that it's been accelerated by the pandemic. And so mm. now you have a green light for change that just hasn't been there before, where uh, organizations are going, wow, since we're already reinventing our business model now, and we're already changing the way that we operate and, and our culture is experiencing our business and our clients are experiencing our business, we might as well start to look at some of these bigger challenges. And so I think there's kind of a groundswell meets pandemic meets a bunch of good ideas that should have happened a long time ago. Mm. And it's just starting to spin inside of this pot. And mm. so um, the way I like to say it, and uh, I've talked with Alex about this a number of times, I believe this next decade is going to bring more change than the previous two combined. Wow. And I think yeah. it's because of the nature of the way that this um, confluence and compounding event is happening is mm -hmm. going to just start to create openings that doors will open that have never been opened before right? yeah. in, in, in very, very good ways. 
And then, okay, well, let's look at ending up on one side of history or the other is if someone, if an organization, if a leader chooses to not move forward now in this decade, I think that it's a, there will only be a short period of time before that person finds themselves, that organization finds themselves no longer relevant Mm -hmm. because it's the speed of the churn now is so much faster than before. It used to be like, for example, the S&P 500, you could be on that for 60 years. Now it's less than 15. And now it's going to be even less than that, right? So the churn of the, of the business machine is hyper-accelerated. The, the speed of change is nonlinear. And so like, let's bring it back to the whole conversation we had, which is uh, our humanity is the reason why we created all of these things. <laughs> literally that's why we build what we build the yep. societies and the technologies and the infrastructure yep. that we have so <laughs> this is the interesting time to go how do we protect the most important thing the heart and soul of the whole thing while we go through more change than has ever happened before in history and it's so i think people like us who care a lot about that um can do our best work i hope i aspire we aspire <laughs> to do our best work <laughs> That was a really wonderful and rich answer, Nate. And I'd love to build on it and just kind of laser in on on the human and relational side. You know, as somebody who was a growth strategist for a large consultancy and was selling a lot of big data and AI projects in my last two years in that business, the thing that really accelerated my leap from that world into this podcast and to, you know, some of the things that I'm building behind the scenes was a feeling of, oh my gosh, all of these CEOs and CFOs and CTOs and CMOs and CSOs are all buying AI and automation. And they're all buying, how do we become digital at our core? How do we compete against startups? How do we work in more agile methodologies? But there was so much focus on how can our people do more and learn better, faster, et cetera, but very little thought around how do we think about this human element? How do we think about how, you know, Bob Chapeska is going to feel when his best friend gets fired and replaced by a chatbot? Is he going to be comfortable in his seat? Right. You know, how are people going to feel as they're being told, hey, this automation is here to serve you so you can do these higher level order things? And maybe that's not exactly what's happening. You know, how do people feel around purpose and their own humanity? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is very concerning. And that's where I think these relational tools and being able to talk in a very thoughtful, open way to create psychological safety. Safety, yeah. yeah. And a sense of, we are thinking about you. We're not just rolling this thing in to please Wall Street and goose our profits. And when I looked into the educational space for human skills for corporations, it seems to be we're in the very early days. Um, and Nate, you can probably attest to this, that a lot of these companies are still buying the big five consultancies and looking for more management consulting style guidance for their people and professional development as opposed to kind of beginning to look at things like authentic relating or improving EQ and, 
you know, empathy has been quite a buzzword this year, as we all know, right? The the importance to have empathy. And we had uh, Camille Fetter on our second episode, and uh, she talked in detail about the lack of empathy um, in many of the companies that she was dealing with and, and the need for that and the fact that at the board level, C-suite executives who can't exhibit empathy are being, you know, pretty, pretty quickly replaced nowadays. Mm-hmm. So. To sum it up, people are recognizing that there's a need for more human skills, more humanity, but in terms of what they're buying and doing, I think the effort is pretty pretty nascent. And, and I think that goes back to something that I said before, um, Jason, when you and I were talking, I, before we even started the podcast, is culture is the output of leadership behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to influence a culture faster than any other way, it's when leaders model the way for what this um, compelling, powerful, inclusive, generative behavior should be. Mm-hmm. And, and so it comes back to the point that you made, which is it can very easily be destroyed. No matter what your investment is, let's say you spent $50,000, $150,000 to get your people X training in a moment, that can be just destroyed if the leadership isn't modeling the way. So. That what Alex is bringing up, I think, is kind of the the key that unlocks the other doors, which is if you can get leaders who lead differently in a human way that care deeply about humanity, and then that infuses the organization faster than anything else by far, and it's far more sticky and sustainable, then you can really you can really do some amazing things. Yeah, I feel encouraged. <laughs> hearing you guys talk about it yeah it's happening yeah, yeah i i definitely don't see this as dystopian i think uh i think eyes are opening hearts are opening minds are opening right now going huh this is a chance to do something different we should do something different <laughs> <laughs> yeah how about we try something different yeah. Yeah. yeah do you have more questions for us Hmm. Um, I'd love just to hear a little bit more. I mean, you took this two day training with me in LA mm-hmm. and you said you read most of the book. Like, what have you personally, I mean, you're obviously a, a savvy communicator. You're, you're have absorbed a lot of, uh, this work around culture in our, in all these trends and you have a podcast, like what did you uniquely get from that training, which is called the art of being human? or the book? Well, some of those things, it's, it's a great question. Some of those things I've shared already, I think, you know, certainly slow down. And I would even build on that and say, I feel things pretty intensely, which, which I've also shared. And I think sometimes, you know, for me, I can have a, a real mix of emotions, kind of not know what emotion is most present. So that slow down could be slow down in the conversation. Or it could be to ask someone, say, hey, let me get back to you. I need to process this. I've got something coming up, and I don't want to give you my knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm feeling something. Let me just sort through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty powerful. Um, yeah, there's a few times in the book, um, like you're saying, where I make things so simple. And this is what my the process of editing and writing this book was so fascinating because I really had to make it absolutely as simple as possible because, and it's not because 
we're not highly intelligent beings that like are capable of um, processing so much complexity. It's just that the emotional body, like if you imagine each of us has an emotional body, it doesn't speak English. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's not the same part of us that deals with complexity. Like our emotional self, EQ, grows through experience, modeling, um, and it, like I said before, the pace of relationship is slow. And so that's why I came up with these um, tools. Like one of the tools is called, can we slow down? And like, these are literally words you can say out loud in relationship to, you know, or in another one that you're referencing now is called, let me check, which is like, okay, something's happening here. I need time to sort it out. Let me pause and prepare the other person and, and just like give myself the time to emotionally process through something so that then I can be as clear as possible. Um, emotional clarity, we all arrive at it different ways. Some people it's journaling, some people it's running, you know? For, for me, it's also a sense of, is this even going to be here tomorrow or in an hour, what I'm mm. feeling? Like, do I even want to have this conversation? Is this important? And I would actually give you some, some friendly pushback on, on, uh, on one idea that was shared. You, you had mentioned that if you feel something more than twice toward a person, then you should probably share it. And for me, I don't know that that's necessarily true because I might feel something twice in the course of a day and then realize the next day, hey, this is old patterning. This is a wound. This is, yeah. some, this is something from my past that has nothing to do with, like, this is where the mislabeling would come in for me. It's, hey, I have mislabeled this situation. And I know I'm feeling this way about it, but that's the, this, this emotion doesn't match what's actually happening. This emotion is from something else. You know, I need to, this is, this is version 1.0 and I'm using 2.0 software now. (laughs) I need something congruent with that. Yeah. We're Um, so, we're so often shadow boxing with our past mm -hmm. that I've lately present what's actually there. Yeah. And, and for me, the idea in my own mind, the most powerful idea walking out of the workshop, for me, it wasn't conflict equals energy. It was conflict equals growth. Mm-hmm. That's how I internalized it. That my new framework is that when conflict comes up, it's an opportunity for growth. Yeah. In spite of embracing my humanity, guys, I, I will admit to my personal growth junkieism. <laughs> so that that's that lights me up that idea lights me up that oh hey this thing is happening and uh you know cool okay i can just lean into it and have a totally different relationship with conflict than i used to and i i wanted to ask you you know i feel we've shared such a a rich conversation today and started to give a little bit of an overview and of course Anybody listening that's interested, grab the book. That is your that is your template to understanding this stuff and really going deeper. Or take the course. It's incredibly reasonable and time very, very well spent. The Authentic Relating Training Company. Um, but check out, uh, I would love to just share 
maybe Jason a little bit on Aikido because I feel like a, a takeaway for people on how to process conflict in the end of 2020 I means the second to last day of 2020 we've all made it congrats to all of us <laughs> we're here we're here we're healthy feeling good yeah so that's amazing um but how can people better handle conflict when it is brought to them and that practice that you've outlined as aikido could you could you elaborate Mm -hmm. Yeah, chapter 11 and 12 in the book, the last two chapters are called Emotional Aikido and Emotional Alchemy. And these are, um, you know, a direct process for how to work with conflict on either side of the conflict. And I think of the Karate Kid quite a bit. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I think of the Karate Kid sometimes because there's this amazing scene where he's like, sand the deck. Uh, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, right? And then you get into the arena. Uh, Brene Brown has this beautiful um, teaching around when you're in the arena, you know. And those, all of those things that you've been practicing, you know, the self-awareness, the emotional clarity, the, um, the noticing game, like the curiosity, like just doing reps on curiosity and thinking of, you know, curiosity and appreciation as heart muscles, like, you know, um, just thinking of curiosity and appreciation as skills that we can grow at you know, for our whole lives. And same thing with listening, like all of these things kind of culminate in the last two chapters of the book. And uh, Aikido is essentially uh, receiving um, upset, anger, charge, um, difficulty in a way that transmutes that energy into love. Mm. And the, the very first step, um, in Taoist fashion, like, could, could you say, would you say for people that are listening that might be allergic or resistant to the idea of having a conflict or with with a coworker end in love could you say perhaps also as a synonym for love in some situations understanding mm -hmm. or openness mm -hmm. or connection mm -hmm. or walls down <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah mutual understanding i think that's a great synonym for love in this uh, yeah just being on the same page and that's why i say like clarity connection and teamwork is uh the main benefits of actually this is the reason why we'd be authentic the reason why we do conflict transformation work is for clarity connection and teamwork if we know each other be better we can mitigate each other's weaknesses and we can maximize each other's strengths which creates synergy and teamwork over time so that's why it's helpful to talk about the way you annoy me <laughs> <laughs> totally and when that. it's done in in that attitude of like hey i really want to get to understand why you show up that way because there's some value whether or not you're being skillful or not is irrelevant there's some value underneath the thing that you're doing that annoys me and if we can really see and honor the values that are underneath these things regardless of whether or not someone's being skillful with their communication, um, then we can champion that value and disagree with the content. This is, this is the key to healing polarization. 
is, you know, your values around traditionalism and, or whatever that value is, uh, you know, your value around protection of your family. I have championed that. I want to support that. And the way that you're manifesting it, or, you know, I disagree with the content. So maybe another way is um, that I'm trying to relate the way I think about that to what you're saying, Jason, is the intention or spirit behind the behavior is different than the behavior and the impact. Mm -hmm. And so I can go, I can appreciate you for doing the best you can with what you have. And the intention you have is to protect or serve or support or whatever. And the, the way it's coming out is different, but there's something behind that that we can lift up in honor. I like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for everyone listening, I think one thing that's really important to note is that all of this stuff takes practice. And that's why the Lots. games... <laughs> The games are really a fun and playful way to engage with this stuff and learn it more quickly. And I think we could all use a little bit more play in our lives. And having taken the course, I will tell you that the games are super fun. And these practices might feel a little bit uncomfortable at first, but they become comfortable very, very quickly in my own experience. These are not impossible things to learn these are tools that are readily available quickly after you lean in um and they're in the book and uh and the online courses and in the in-person courses so i just want to reinforce that jason i have one last question for you very simple question mm -hmm. we just went through a historic year mm -hmm. on so many levels what impacted you the most in in whatever way you feel relevant 2020 happened what impacted you the most what impacted me the most um wow i don't even I, this is a really interesting question <laughs> because i feel like i could name five things yeah. um feel free to name yeah five. just mm -hmm. yeah i think what impacted me the most um was really the receptivity of the community around this book like the support that i've received from um even the mentors like the the story that i told you earlier of like this author who you know i reached out to him like hey could you please you know write an endorsement for my book you i remember i met you a year and a half ago and we you know hung out for a little while together at this conference and and he offered something that was like 20 times what I asked for. Like, so what impacts me the most is when I see humans being generous. Mm. It gives me hope. Yes. And so the generosity that I've received from my colleagues of um, supporting me around this book and, and um, yeah, because it, it was a really interesting, grueling process. You know, I, I had to go through the book 10 times and every time cut out 5% of the word count. And I'm not a detailed oriented guy. I'm an artist by nature. <laughs> um, and thank God for my editors who helped me do it. Um, but I really had, I was determined to make it really accessible and digestible so that someone could literally pick it up and read for three minutes and still get something out of it. And that's why there's so many like there's so many bite-sized pieces and I really wanted to create a curriculum that 
hung together, all the puzzle pieces uh, feeding into each other. Um, so yeah, also, I mean, it, it's this, this year has been the book for me mm. because it changed my mind. It literally changed the structure of my brain to go through the editing process in the, the spring and early summer. Um, and then the, just the receptivity and the generosity of people um, in the last four months since I released it. And so, yeah, thank you so much, Alex, for inviting me to be on and, and delving deep into this conversation with me. It's been fun. It's been a blast. And yeah. thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and all the wisdom that you're putting out into the world. I think people need this now more than ever. Um, mm -hmm. I think they need it now more than ever. And and I was so impressed with kind of the, the, the grace and the calm that you handled a large and dynamic and pretty intelligent group with a lot of questions and a lot of intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I, what I took away from that was you've really learned this practice. <laughs> you've really learned this practice. That's why you are a master at this practice and why you can teach it is that you can mm -hmm. navigate those waters so well and, and, and be unperturbed and just show up and, and help all of us through that journey. So thank you again. And my fiance and I are taking level two online next awesome. month. So we're Very super cool. excited. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Jason, thank you for doing the work that you're doing, for making a powerful impact in this world, for giving this gift, for sharing this gift, for being on the show. We are grateful. Certainly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Be sure to check out Jason Diggs and his unbelievable programs at AuthenticRelating.co. That's AuthenticRelating.co. .co, as in Charlie Oscar. And of course, grab the book, Conflict Equals Energy. It is just amazing. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to give us a rating. Five-star reviews are, of course, acceptable. And please also share this with your people at work and at home. We are grateful for your time and attention, and we hope you learned something valuable by tuning in today. Remember, the biggest periods of change bring the biggest opportunities. We're in this together and we're here to help. <laughs>